I'm 350 pounds. I'm smoking a joint, eating chocolate cake, and watching the CrossFit games. And I went and I looked at myself in the bathroom mirror. And as I was looking at myself, like I was looking at this fat face, this body I hated, this life I was miserable in. I asked myself, what are you willing to do to have the life that you want to have? And the answer was no excuses, just results. And in that moment, I realized two things. One, I was no longer a child. And two, everything was my fault. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Michael Unbroken and dive deep into hat numbers one, two, three, and four. The soul, the athlete, the servant, and the entrepreneur. As we get unstuck and dive deep into one of the most heroic journeys and successful stories that I have ever encountered. We discuss mental health blocks, childhood trauma, life's inherent obstacles, and the entrepreneurial roller coaster, and provide tips on how to get out of the vortex and become the hero of your own story. Michael grew up in chaos. His mom was a drug addict and alcoholic. His father abandoned him when he was barely two years old, and his stepfather was extremely abusive. Stripped of his childhood, Michael faced severe beatings, belittlement, molestation, and homelessness, and was ready to kill himself. Then one day, everything changed. Michael made that fateful decision in a single moment that changed his life forever. I'm not kidding that this episode is high energy, raw, emotional, and explicit. So if you're faint of heart, you may want to skip it. But if you're ready for a hardcore story of triumph, this is it. So let's welcome Michael to The Seven Hats. Michael, welcome to The Seven Hats. What is up, my friend? I am very excited to be here with you right now. Oh, so am I. You know, your story is inspirational and heroic, to say the least. I came across one of your quotes, and it really hit me hard because not everyone's life turns out okay. It's a lot of hard work to get our lives in in order. And for you, to be here speaking with me now was a Herculean effort. So the quote that I'm referring to was, I came from a place where statistically I should not be talking to you right now. I should be dead or in jail. So what I'd like to do now is uncover some of your journey. But in order to do so, we need to start at the beginning to get a sense of your struggles and challenges that you had to overcome. So let's start with where were you born and how was your childhood like? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'll, I'll definitely give you the, the elevator pitch here. So I grew up in Indianapolis. My mother was a drug addict and alcoholic. Um, she actually cut off my right index finger when I was four years old. And people always go like, wow, how could your mother do that? And, and like the truth about it is she was perpetuating the continuation of trauma. Her mom abused her and so on and so forth. 
And she married my stepfather who was super abusive, you know, like the kind of dude you pray is never your stepfather. And he would beat the shit out of my brothers and I, he put me in the hospital, you know, that whole thing. And I spent a lot of my childhood homeless and deeply in poverty. I mean, we were always getting evicted. They were always turning off the water, the heat, the electricity. And I lived with 30 different families as a child, just getting bounced around place to place, separated from my siblings, separated from safety. Some of those places were super dangerous. Some of those places, they took care of us. Um, and my grandmother adopted me when I was 12. And you would think that'd be a godsend, but so I'm biracial, I'm black and white. My grandma's some old racist ass white lady from a town in Tennessee you never heard of. So insert identity crisis, right? And I got high for the first time when I was 12, drunk at 13. At 15, I was expelled from school. I was selling drugs, running with guns, running from the cops, breaking into people's houses. We'd steal people's shit, go sell it at the pawn shop. We'd, you know, it was crazy, man. We'd steal cars. We were doing what we thought we needed to do to survive. And luckily, I got put into a last chance program. And I still didn't graduate high school on time. And in fact, they basically handed me the diploma, dude. They were like, you just got to get the hell out of here. We're done with you. And I was trying to find, like, after that, the solution for poverty, for homelessness, for abuse. It seemed to me like money had to be the thing, right? Because, like, when I sold drugs as a kid, like, that was about survival. But I knew that wouldn't go where I wanted it to go for me. And as of today, my three childhood best friends have been murdered. Like doing the shit we used to do, man. And and I thought, I remember after not graduating high school and not being able to get in the military, I had two dreams as a kid. Don't die, become a Marine Corps scout sniper. That's it. I come from a military family. My brother served, my cousin served, my uncle served. That was where I was going. But I hurt my knee my senior year of high school, couldn't pass MEPS, got an almost perfect ASVAB score. I could have done anything I wanted in the military. And I was stuck. I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And I was like, I want to make $100,000 a year legally by the time I'm 21. I had clarity around that goal at 18 years old. And so I just started learning the skills. And the first thing that I knew was like, okay, what is my environment? I'm going to go get a job at a fast food place. Maybe I'll be a manager. And if I become a manager, I'll make that money. And that was my plan. And next thing you know, I'm a manager of one of the busiest fast food restaurants in all of Indiana. We're doing like 10 G's a day in fucking cheeseburger sales, man. I had 52 people under me. I was working 65 hours a week. I was making $36,000, which is like a million dollars when you're 18, right? And I was in this place where I was just trying to figure out what was next. I thought the path to $100,000 a year was to become a regional manager, right? And I was on a MySpace chat with one of my friends, aging myself a little bit here. And uh, he's like, he went to my high school. We grew up together. We were friends. And he was like, dude, I just got a job for an insurance company. I was like, holy shit, that's a thing? Like you can do that? Because I didn't know, dude. Like we worked fast food. We worked warehouse jobs. We worked in kitchens. We bought our cars at buy here, pay here lots. I didn't know you could have that. That's literally the first time I'd ever heard anyone say anything like that in my life. And I was like, oh, that's how I get to it. And for the next basically year and a half, I got better at writing resumes, better at writing cover letters, interviewing. I interviewed with like fucking 15 insurance companies. And then right as I turned, right as I was about to turn 21, I landed a job with a Fortune 10 company. 
no high school diploma, no college education, started doing sales, hit that goal of six figures, and my life became so incredibly terrible. Because that thing happens to people when they get money for the first time that happened to me. I remember the first time I got a check for $10,000. I went and spent it the same day. Like, do you know how dumb that is when you're like 21 years old? It's like, not uncommon though. I can tell I, you, you, you. I know you find- it's not, but it's like, dude, think about this. It's like if the word drip exists back then, I was dripping, dude. I, it was so oh, nice. stupid. And so for the next five years, that's what I did. And my life became so terrible. I was 350 pounds, smoking two packs a day, drinking myself to sleep, cheating on my partners, lying to people all the fucking time. And that's when I put a gun in my mouth. I was just done, man. I was like, money was supposed to solve all my problems. And it didn't. And I didn't know what to do. And the next morning I woke up and I was laying in bed. And, you know, again, keep in mind, I'm 350 pounds. I'm smoking a joint, eating chocolate cake and watching the CrossFit games. Like, dude, if if that's (laughs) not rock bottom, I don't know what is. And I went and I looked at myself in the bathroom mirror and I I will never understand why I did this. And as I was looking at myself, like I was looking at this fat face, this body I hated, this life I was miserable in. And I remember being eight years old. And the water company came to our house on Allison Avenue and they turned our water off. And it was like a blistering hot Indiana August summer day. And I went in the backyard and I took this little blue bucket and I walked across to the street to the neighbor's house. I turned on the spigot of the side of their house and I stole water for the first time. And I grew up in America, dude. Wow. And I remember thinking in that moment, when I'm a grown up, this will not be my life. And it wasn't my life financially, but it was in every other aspect because I was still that hurt, lost little boy. As I had that memory and looked at myself in the mirror, I asked myself, What are you willing to do to have the life that you want to have? And the answer was no excuses, just results. And in that moment, I realized two things one, I was no longer a child. And two, Everything was my fault. And from that moment, I got deep into this journey. I started doing therapy, group therapy, gestalt therapy, men's group therapy, trauma-informed therapy, CBT, EMDR. I started going to coaching, getting coaches and reading the books, going to the conferences. Today, I have over 30 trauma-informed certifications and certificates. I started putting myself in a position to be successful and stop putting up with my own bullshit, taking care of myself. And 11 years later, here I am talking to you. I, I love it. And and we'll dig into a lot. You, you just gave us a lot. So we'll dig into that. I want to take you back a little bit. Your siblings, how are they? I'm super proud of my siblings, man. Like we, we are really breaking this cycle. You know, recently I actually took them down to Florida to go to Tony Robbins Unleash the Power Within. And, you know, I'm so fortunate I was able to afford that and take them and show them the other side. They're changing their lives every single day, man. It's fucking incredible. 
And, you know, we we're orphans in the world. We don't have parents. I can't pick up the phone and call somebody. And so for them, for me, cause you know, it's one of those things like your brother is never going to listen to you. You know what I yeah. mean? No matter what I ever do, they'll never listen to me, but like being able to take them and expose them to that and just watch the way they are thinking now and changing and moving. Like, I'm so proud of them. I've always been proud of them. Like we've had our wars, we've had our battles, like it is what it is, but you know, I, I love them dearly and I'm proud of them every day. So they changed their life around. You think that they're model citizens at this point. So would, did you I would not say have, that. I would never call anyone a model citizen. Okay. So, so would you, so did you have that effect on them or did they do it themselves and you kind of merged in later in life? I think there's levels to this, right? I think there's levels. And and what I mean by that is, you know, they were always trying to strive and figure it out, same as me. And then I think one of the things that happened is they just noticed. I mean, there was a period of time where my family wouldn't talk to me. They were like, don't, you're a fucking asshole. You're a piece of shit. Don't talk to me. Don't come around. Don't text me. Nothing, man. Like I had to earn that back. And, you know, it's really beautiful the way that, that all my siblings think. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that we'll ever be as close as a lot of families are, but man, we're trying and, you know, whether they got it from me or they got it from Jay-Z or Kobe, I know people they look up to or, you know, serving in the military, it doesn't matter to me where it came from. It's just that it's there. Yeah. I mean, you had a fucked up childhood. Take us a little bit into that a little deeper. You know, your mom was a drug addict, uh, addict, uh, alcoholic. She's been, she really fell into that addiction. How was that growing up? Was she the one that introduced you to drugs initially? Like how, how did you get a hold of, of drugs at 11 years old? How did that happen? Yeah. So that, there's a lot in that. First, I, I mean, we were always exposed to it. Like even at like six or seven years old, I knew if I climbed on top of the armoire, there was, there was weed. Like I yeah. knew it was up there. So it wasn't like I was shocked or were surprised. We were always around it. You know, it was really prescription drugs and Oxycontin that, that really got my mom, right? Wow. The, the prescription drug addiction, we would have tons of those little fucking orange bottles all over the house. They'd be hidden. They'd be stuffed. There'd be alcohol everywhere. She would drive drunk. She almost drove us off of a bridge one time. Like it was fucking crazy, man. She'd get pulled over all the time. I had to call 911 like three different times where she overdosed. Like, I mean, it's the most chaotic shit you can fucking imagine. And in that, like, it just was so normal. That's the thing people have to understand. Like it was not on like my mom. I, I can't say they're not a fuck them. My mom sued Walmart one time and she got all this money from them. And she went on this bender where she disappeared for like a fucking year. Wow. And where, who was taking care of you? No one. I was by myself at one point for three months at home like, with no one living around? in an abandoned house. Oh, wow. Like, taking showers at school and stealing food from the big lots around the corner where my friend's mom worked. And like, that was just another fucking Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? And, and like, that's the power of drugs. That's a power of addiction. And so when I was 12 years old, my grandmother who adopted me in the neighborhood, what my best friend was up the road and you know, his, his family life was very similar. It was not that much different and his parents sold drugs. So we would just go, it was weed at first, right? That's how it always starts. So we'd go pinch off little fucking nickels and shit. They would never notice. And we'd take that money. We'd go to McDonald's. We'd go to the corner store and buy slushies and fucking butterfingers and shit like that. But eventually it was like selling pseudofedrin and stealing, um, you know, pills from the grocery store and selling them to our friends. And then it was 
you know, cocaine. And then it just kind of just continued to go deeper and deeper until the point where I had to hit the eject button. I was like, wait a second, hold the fuck up. Like whatever is about to happen is bad. But dude, we would be in the most precarious situations because we'd get stoned the moment we woke up, whatever it took, man, yeah. we were popping pills. We were drinking cough syrup. We were, we were smoking weed. We were, we were taking fucking like weed blunt roaches and breaking them down and loading pipes and scraping off the fuck. Dude, I'm probably gonna have fucking lung cancer from the shit that I did in my fucking teens, man. And that's what felt right. It was numbing to us. It made us invisible to all the pain. I mean, at one point, even I smoked a blunt dipped in embalming fluid. Wow. Like I went to another planet. I was like 14. That was the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. We had no regard for our own body. We were just trying to like survive every day. And it felt, dude, it felt normal for people who have never lived like how we lived. I cannot explain to you why you think it's crazy. And I think it's normal. Cause it was everywhere. Yeah. And, and a lot of people would just not get it. They're going to hear this story and they're going to be like, Oh, poor guy, you know, poor kid. But the reality is it, that was your path. That was your experience. I mean, we come to this earth to experience all there is to experience and some experience what you've experienced and some are born to billionaires and sit around popping pills because they have no purpose in their life. Right. But same addiction, different experience. Right. So I, I interviewed a guy named Hassani X, a great storyteller, amazing individual. And we spoke about trauma uh, and resentment and resentment of our past in a sense. His definition of trauma is trauma is just your drama rehearsed over and over and over again. And Wayne Dyer provided the following analogy that resentment is like venom that continues to pour through your system, doing its poisonous damage long after the, the bite of the snake. It's not the bite that kills you, it's the venom. I'm sure in your practice, you work with individuals that hold resentment, blame, and experience trauma, right? Long after the event has transpired. You had to deal with that, right? You eventually had to cut the venom because it was killing you. So how did you do it and how would you help somebody who in their mind, the egoic mind is continuing to replay that trauma from childhood where currently they're not being hurt by it. Yeah, I, and this phenomenal question. I love that quote. I've heard it many times. You know, I, I carry this scar, man. I carry this finger my mother cut off. The, the damage, the discoloration, the missing fingernail, the fact that I can't feel it, multiple skin grafts. I carry that every day. And I hid from it. I ran from it. I stuffed it down. I made it seem like it didn't matter. This is the venom, right? Yep. And the more that I did it, the more it consumed me. Hmm. And the more it consumed me, the more it, in, it destroyed my life. And it wasn't until I brought awareness and acknowledgement to it and I sat with it and I was like, hold the fuck up, man. This matters. You can't run from this. Dude, there was a period of time where I didn't cry for 15 years. Wow. My best, one of my best friends got murdered in that window. My grandmother died. My mom died. I didn't cry. I just turned off. And then I realized like in this moment, this journey of like, wait a second, this isn't working. This stuffing it down, it's going to come out. And so it was coming out, it was coming out in sex and drugs and cars and clothes and, you know, being obese, 
all of the, it was coming out. It was existing because it needed to get out. You know, Bessel van der Kolk wrote an amazing book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it really alludes to the reality that like the pain, the trauma, the experiences, they're stored within our physical body and you must release them. And that became so, again, this thing about this venom, like it holds so true. I had to get it out. I had to let it go. And then it turned into like really diving into that work, like getting serious about therapy, having hard conversation. You know more about me in eight seconds than people who knew me for 27 years. Hmm. I kept it that close to the chest. People would be like, what's wrong with you? I'd be like, nothing, I'm fine. My, my partners, my girlfriends, they would be like, you never open up to me. I'd be like, I tell you everything. You know what I mean? And it's like that stuff was consuming me. And it wasn't until I got deep into the work and understood the ramifications of trauma that my life really began to change. Because I would go to therapy, I would pay this dude hundreds of dollars an hour for years and lie to him. Wow. Because it was safe. Yeah. You got to understand like the real implication of trauma, the real ramification of the experience of the past is that the most dangerous thing a kid can do is exist. Mm. And so you learn to turn off. You learn to become a robot. You learn to be not seen, not heard, not exist. You learn that every single time you have an opinion, you're going to get thrown through a wall. And so what do you do? You turn off. It's safety. What is the brain's purpose? Very simple. Survival. That's yep. it. The yep. brain's only job is to make sure that you can procreate and that your creations can procreate. That's yep. it. The reptilian brain. Yes. 100%. And so what happens is your autonomic nervous system learns to take these experiences, make meaning of them, apply meaning to them, and recognize stick or snake. And in that, what happens is you start to adapt skills of survival. You learn how to shut off. You turn off. You remove identity. You become robotic and dissociated. And what happens in that is that it actually serves you mm -hmm. until it doesn't. Yep, exactly. And then when it doesn't, what happens is you're faced with the most existential crisis that I believe anyone will ever face. You've never been yourself before and you don't know how. Yep. And the hardest thing that I've ever done, the Michael sitting here right now today having this conversation is a creation of the idea of the person I thought I could be. Wow. And that required a tremendous amount of work, effort, failure, trying things, putting myself in precarious situation, fucking up a lot, right? But also doing the work, finding grace, finding love, finding peace, finding companionship and intimacy and hope and learning to cry and learning to be compassionate and empathetic and writing and journaling and meditation and going through coaching and seminars and conferences and the whole nine. Because the reality is like childhood trauma is the theft of identity. Like that's what it is. And every experience that we ever have impacts who we are today. And to be dismissive of those things that happened to you, that's the venom. To pretend yeah. that stuff didn't happen, it's going to consume you. And one day it's going to take everything from you. And it almost took everything from me. And I, I'm not joking when I say I'm lucky. I should be dead or in jail, but I'm here talking to you today. Yeah. That fucking ego you're talking about, you know, my spiritual teacher, Atmananda Das, said the only way that you can combat that ego is humility. And humility 
in understanding that the ego is in control of you and you're lying to yourself, just like you're looking in the mirror. How did humility come into play with you? I knew everything until I figured out that I knew nothing. Mm, I love that. Because, because knowing everything felt like safety. People would all, my greatest character trait and my greatest character flaw is that I'm stubborn. Hmm. And so what I didn't understand then was that being that stubborn, being that so close to feeling like I know everything was a defensive mechanism entirely. It was about safety because if I knew more than you, then I could outsmart you. That doesn't bode well for anything, for life, for relationships, for friendships, for career, for entrepreneurship. I fucked up so many things in my life because I had to know everything, but I didn't and I don't. And when I switched my identity and I recognized that like I had to learn, the greatest tool that I think anyone has in healing trauma is to become a learner, to get educated, to sit and just really consume information all the time so that you can start making meaning of things and and removing that idea because it's really a fixed mindset, right? To be like, I know everything, like that's the ultimate fixed mindset. Yep. And that's where I was. And so removing that and stepping into the identity, and I didn't have the words for I'll I'll, I'll credit Tom Bilyeu for actually talking to me one time and being like, oh yeah, you're in the learner mode. And I, I'm so lucky I have him in my life. And like recognizing like, oh, holy shit. Like the truth is when I became a learner, everything about who I am changed forever. And and I think that's what it was. And it's it's not that I've like removed myself from my ego because I certainly have not, but it is very much so that I get to know who I am at a deeper level because I'm willing to acknowledge like I don't know anything. Yeah, that's great. That's really, that, that's the first step is acknowledgement, right? Did you ever reconcile with those that hurt you? I mean, you have your mom, you have your dad, your stepdad, your grandma, probably others, or did you just basically leave them behind? Yeah, no. So I'm going to give you context here so you can, so I, I want to make this clear for people. My, my mother, when I was 14, my mother and my stepfather, when I was 14 years old, I put a restraining order on them. I had to. Like I knew like if those people stayed in my life, I was in, I was going to be way worse off than I was. And eventually my, my mom actually sobered up. There was a period of time when I was like 17 where she was off of drugs. And it was, it was actually pretty interesting. You can, I have a photo of my report card where you can see where she was healthy and sober. And I had straight A's in high school. I was captain of the football team, captain, or excuse me, I was on the football team, captain of the wrestling team, on the baseball team. I was dating a cheerleader. Like life was actually good for a moment. And then she relapsed again. And then one night when I was 18, it was in the spring, she tried to attack me in my sleep. And I told her like, after I, I, I kicked her to the ground and I said, if you ever touch me again, I'll kill you. And until the day she died, I did not talk to her again. Mm. Dude, you, you can only give somebody so many chances. Of course. But I think what's really important that, that I've come to recognize and understand about myself is I, I no longer carry the weight of that with me. So you reconciled it within support. yourself, not yeah, 100%. with them. Got it. Yes. And my grandmother died. And like, by the time that she died, like I was so removed from being a human being, like I couldn't have had a conversation with her. You know what I mean? It, and that was in my, my early twenties. 
my stepfather, I haven't seen that dude in forever. I have no want nor need to. And uh, oddly enough, I've actually never shared this on a podcast about six months ago, someone reached out to me and told me my father's still alive. I knew it was going to happen. Dude, I swear to God, like a movie, yeah. I was like, one day it's going to yeah, come. One day. The, the more famous you get, all of a sudden they creep out of the woodwork. And that's what happened. And she hit me up and she goes, your dad's alive. She sent me a picture of him. And I go, that's not my father. I don't want to know him. Yeah. Good luck to you. Yeah. And, and I'm okay with that. I don't look, man, I am. I'm going to say something that's going to fuck people up right now. Yeah. I am grateful for everything that ever happened to me. I love that. I would not be here right now if it not. And, and look, I can't change the past. When you let go of that, when you let go of this notion that you can change what happened to you and you get out of that fucking victim mentality and you make a decision, you make a decision to take control over your life and you understand that everyone is having a human experience. No one knows what they're doing. And sometimes people are going to fuck up way worse than other people. And you just try to do your best. It's a lot easier to navigate this world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's looking back, everyone says, I'm never going to be like my mom. I'm never going to be like my dad, but we all inherit traits. Yeah. Now we know that the, you've inherited a lot of the bad traits, right? And you, you overcame them. But my question is kind of the opposite. Let's flip it around. Were those that hurt you so much, 100% evil, or did they have redeeming characteristics, those characteristics that you actually took from them that were great that you can speak to? I don't think anybody's evil, man. I think people are Im- embedded with chaos. I think people continue to perpetuate things that they're taught. You know, I go look at, I'll give you a great example. My, my grandma was kind of a terrible person, like for real. And she was super racist and she was so mean to all of her kids. But look at her, how her parents treated her. Same as my stepfather. My stepfather's mother, I would argue, was the worst person I've ever known. She Mm. was a terrible fucking human being. I I would put her at a a worse person than anyone else I was close to. Uh, That's saying a lot. And I go, of course, how, how would he end up like that? She was a terrible human. But imagine what her parents did to her. Yeah. That's why, dude, that's why I'm telling you, my mission is very simple. End generational trauma in my lifetime through education and information so that another kid does not have to have a story like mine. Yeah. Because that is a fucking cycle. And that's the truth about it. Like those people are not evil. Like my mom wasn't evil. My mom went to drugs because it made her feel disconnected from the pain of her experience. Wow. Right? Why do people do the things they do? Then they numb. Absolutely. Yep. Right. They numb reality. And it's easy. I did too for a long time. You don't end up 350 pounds smoking two packs a day, drinking yourself to sleep and being high from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed because life is good. Oh yeah, for sure. I promise you that. Did did you ever blame yourself for your your parents' behavior and and, and others? No, no, I didn't. Here's why actually. One of the best things that happened to me is being homeless. Because I had to live with all those different families. And I rec- one of the things that was very interesting is some of those families were really, really good. Some of those families were really, really bad. And I just, I, I didn't blame because I was like, wait, some people are good. Some aren't fine. I didn't blame. Like, it didn't make sense to me to blame. Was I pissed at my mom? Fuck yeah. All the time. Pissed at my stepdad, my grandmother, the world. Absolutely. But I, I like it. It's not like I blame them for the shit they did to me. I was just like, this is my life. 
I didn't, yeah. again, this just really comes down to like, people don't know that there's a different way. Yeah. And so I just was like, this is what it is. Yeah. I mean, in your awareness, there was a point that you reached rock bottom and you yeah. had to make a decision to make changes, right? To stop breaking promises to yourself, right? So tell us about that time in your life and how did you find the, this is the most important aspect. How did you find the strength to stay consistent and disciplined throughout the journey? Because, you know, addicts and those that are self-sabotaging always want to make that change. No one wants to stay there, but they they just can't stay consistent and disciplined through it. Was it the therapy? Was it something else that gave you that strength? Because you're with the 1%. Most people never get out of that. So how do you get out of that uh, cycle? Yeah. You know, the, I had a lot of rock bottoms on the way to here. I'll probably have a lot more too, because I think there's just levels to this shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uncovering the onion, unpeel, peeling the onion. Yeah. And every time you go into a new level, you're going to find something new right there. Something yeah. new you got to go through. And, you know, I, I mean, for me, rock bottom, my first one, like for real was I'm 18 years old. That, so I want to make context for where we started this conversation. And, and you'll, you'll understand why here in a second. When I was 18 years old, I didn't graduate high school. My girlfriend calls me. She goes, hey, your name's not on the graduation list. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. It's impossible not to graduate from that high school. And in 2004, Harris Polls did a study called Dropout Factories. My school was on that list. It was one of the worst schools in all of America. Wow. And it's impossible not to graduate. And so <laughs> I'm like, holy fuck, dude. I'm now the embarrassment. I am now the biggest loser in the whole school. All of my friends ostracized me. I got uninvited to every graduation party. Every, like I would see them in passing. I'd be so fucking embarrassed. And so my girlfriend calls me. I'm at home stone playing video games. I go to school. I already knew why. I didn't go to school for, I missed a hundred days of school my senior year. Wow. And I go up to Mr. Bush's class. My Here's the irony in all of this. My first period business teacher. I go up to him. And earlier in the semester, I said, straight up, I, I was like, Mr. Bush, your class is at seven o'clock in the morning. I am not coming to this shit. I'm selling drugs. I'm working a fake job at Hollywood Video trying to cover ship, shit up. I got a girlfriend. My grandma's in a coma. Like, you think I give a fuck about this? And he's so, and, and he is like 20 years in. He's seen everything. I'm not telling him nothing surprising. And he goes, look, dude, check in with me do homework. We'll figure it out. I didn't check in with him or do homework one time. Wow. And so I walk up to his room and I'm pissed, dude. I'm like 18. I'm like a fucking monster. And I go, how dare you fail me? What the fuck is wrong with you? And he goes, first off, you don't talk to me that way. <laughs> You're a fucking child. Like, right. <laughs> and, uh, of which I respect. And, uh, he goes, I didn't fail you. You failed yourself. Wow. I love that. And he tells me the most important thing anyone to this day has ever told me in my life, anyone, and I've had amazing mentors, but anyone, he goes, what you need to understand about life is you cannot get by on your charms and your good looks. If you want something, you have to earn it. Yep. And in that moment, that rock bottom being the biggest loser in the whole school, that is what gave me the fuel to start the path to reach that goal at 21. And then the next rock bottom just came again and again. It was just failure after failure after failure 
From a business standpoint, I was good. From an entrepreneurial standpoint, when I started my side hustle of a photography business, I was good eventually when I figured it out. I was great at making money and everything else in my life was misery. And when I had that moment 11 years ago, the first thing that I asked myself when I said, what are you willing to do to have the life that you want to have was, I was like, oh, I've got to learn. I don't know how to eat right. I need to quit smoking. I need to quit drinking. I need to start going to the gym and moving my body and sleeping right and all of the things. And look, man, it took a long motherfucking time for that stuff to work. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, like people are always like, you know, how do you stay consistent by fucking trying every day and not giving up? I mean, that's really all it is. Quitting. Yeah. I mean, I still today, like, dude, I'm all about yoga, meditation, journaling, personal development. I didn't do none of that shit today. Right. Real talk. I didn't. Yeah. I did the other five days this week. Yeah. I'm going to go to the gym as soon as we're done with this after yeah. another interview. Right. I got to, you know, because I'm going to get to it. I still like nobody's fucking perfect, man. Stop holding yourself to this esteem of perfection. It doesn't work. You just said something. I was just thinking about this. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to this subject right now. I'm this seven hats, take care of yourself, morning routine, evening routine, hustle, don't give up, you know, everything that you say. Right. But we're about to move and it's been hectic. So I didn't do six days of workouts and I didn't eat perfectly. And I had New Year's and, you know, whatever that shit is, it's fine. You got to be able to not, you know, in the past, I used to fail one day and have to start all over again saying, you know what? I failed. So I got to go all the way back. And that's just yeah. fucked up in your mind. What you need yeah. to do is like, okay, just continue. Don't go, don't start over again. Yeah. Just you miss a day. Okay. You didn't do seven days, do five. It's okay. But if you stop and you give up, guess what happens? You yeah. got to go all the way back and all those things have to happen again and Dude, again and Grant, again. Grant Cardone taught me the most important thing recently. And it hit so home because it's the way I always have operated, but I never thought about it. He goes, people only lose when they stop. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, God damn, dude. You're so right. If you keep going, like, and you don't climb up Mount Everest and then fall back to the bottom. Yeah. That's not how it works. And so when you're in that place, because look, dude, I'm all about the morning routine. I'm all about showing up for your, there's a fucking chapter in my book about it. I talk about it. I teach my clients about it. I'm, I did not mess up today because I didn't get in the routine. Other things took priority. And because of those other things, the day is a little askew, but that doesn't mean I can't still do the things I said I was going to do. This is what I think is really important, right? I told you, like, as soon as this is done, I'm going to do this other show. I'm going to go to the gym and then I'm going to sit down with my journal. I'm going to write my goals. I'm going to do the things that I normally do because just because it didn't happen in the time frame doesn't mean it can't happen. And I think that's a great parable for life. What you think is going to happen isn't always going to be what happens, but you can still do everything in your power to make sure it does. Yep. No, absolutely. Let me ask you this question. Eckhart Tolle speaks of the now, right? Being present in the moment. Byron Katie speaks of loving what is in the moment. Based on your past, I can't imagine presence was a key to any of your upbringing, right? So how did you change that? And what did you learn about presence and loving what is through your journey? Yeah. And I'm still learning it. And I think mm -hmm. that's a consummate education for everybody. And what I mean about that is like, you know, I look at my life and I go, control what I can control, let go of what I can't. 
And that's held so much power in my life. And presence was not a part of my experience for a very long time because you have to understand when you're dissociated, your brain is basically removed from your body. You're operating on autopilot, just trying to make it day to day. That was the first 26 years of my life. Autopilot, not really knowing what I'm doing, not knowing how I'm showing up. And meditation became a huge role. Yoga, an even bigger role. I still practice yoga at least three times a week. Journaling, right? Being present. Like you have to create presence in your life, right? Not looking at that phone when you wake up. You hear people say that all the time, but think about it. Knowing that the biological response that we have in our human brain is to be flooded with cortisol when we are triggered, right? Fight or flight. That's what happens. That's where triggering comes from. You're in that. Think about this. This will blow your mind. People don't connect these dots. Do you know the very first biological response that happens in your body when you wake up in the morning? Cortisol release. You're triggered the moment you wake up. And so the brain's autonomic response to that is to move towards self-soothing behavior, that's so Literally, when you wake up, you're flooded with cortisol because you have to be alert because there might be a fucking lion yeah. next to Especially you. Especially if there's an alarm ringing, right? That wakes you up too. Like yeah. These, these, and that's yeah. even worse. I don't have an alarm. That never, dude, that alarm sends me off a spiral. If I hear a beep, 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 oh my God, dude, it takes me an hour to get back to like baseline. <laughs> no joke. Because again, that's the cortisol release. Yeah. You're immediately being flooded with that. So think about this. How in the fuck can you get present when you're flooded with cortisol immediately, your brain goes to self-soothing mechanisms as a survival tactic, and then you're picking up your phone to look at it to start your day. Right. And I'm not like, do you, you want to be on your phone in the morning? Fine. Whatever. Just recognize the reality that dissociation exists when you're flooded with cortisol. It just is what it is. So getting back to this place of presence, you know, my morning starts with, I get out of bed. I put my feet on the ground. Literally the first thing I say when I wake up aloud, I am in control of my life. And then from there, I go drink a whole bunch of water. I stretch. I get into the routine. Unless, like this morning, I had a super important thing I had to do literally before I even normally wake up. And so it messed up the flow of the day. But you still have to go and do the things. You still have to show up for yourself. I love that tip. I'm going to start. I'm going to adapt it. I'm going to take it, steal it from you. Get up and say, I'm in charge of my day. I also learned how to give myself a high five in the mirror yeah. every time I, I I leave the bathroom. So tell us about your entrepreneurial journey. No one's immune from the uh, entrepreneurial world coaster. So I'm sure you experienced many challenges that we all experience as entrepreneurs. What were some of those struggles for you, especially with your current business, right, of becoming a solopreneur in a sense? And what skills did you gain through those traumatic years to help you push past those challenges? Yeah. Look, I think resiliency is the number one skill I've gotten from all that. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you got to be resilient because this shit is hard. hard. Uh, yeah. and, it's going to, and it's going to take you five times longer than you think it is to do the thing that you think you're going to do. And, and that's been my experience. I mean, really, I've been entrepreneurial since I was a little kid. At, 18, at eight years old, I was selling popcorn for the Boy Scouts, trying to fund trips, right? At 12, I was selling drugs. I always kind of had a side hustle. In, in high school, I was selling burnt CDs. Like, you know, I always was trying to do I'm really just aged myself. Some people are like, what is a CD? Like, you know, and then by the <laughs> time scary. that, yeah, when I was in my, my mid-20s, like I started a photography business and I grew that thing from zero to making 15 
$10,000 on a Saturday, right? And and that takes time. And today, Think Unbroken is an entrepreneurial endeavor. This is not a charity. I promise you that. And I'm also a partner in multiple retail companies. I have real estate investments, things of that nature. I'm nowhere anywhere remotely close to where I'm trying to go, but I'm somewhere. And I'll tell you this, the, the greatest mistakes that I've made in entrepreneurship over the course of the last, really my entire life has helped me be successful today. One of the things, probably the most important lesson is understanding consumer behavior and buying, demanding, and marketing. I'll give you a perfect example. This is one of my favorite stories about being an entrepreneur. Love it. So I grew up in Indianapolis. 30th and Georgetown was one of the areas I lived in. Right around the corner from that is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Multiple times a year, 300 plus thousand people need to come to Indianapolis to go to the Speedway. And guess what they all need? They all need a place to park. And one summer, I dug up my chain link fence because it's about a two and a half block walk to the infield. I dug up the chain link fence. I parked cars for a hundred dollars a piece, triple and quadruple parked and even in the backyard. And I made $1,500 on a Sunday. Nice. Right. I understood. You motherfuckers need somewhere to park. (laughs) I got a parking lot. You got money. Let's go. And, and that was really one of the first times when I really, I remember I sent my little brother up the street One of my little brothers up the street, I said, start waving people down the block and I'm going to wave them in and we're going to park them. And 300 was too expensive. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) would park them. But when I got to a hundred people were like, yeah, it's a hundred. And it was, it was right. And so now understanding that understanding marketing, understanding in in one of my businesses, it's, uh, it's a retail business. I'm the vice president of international sales and marketing. I'm also a board member and a director, and I have shares and stocks in the company and think unbroken. I'm the chief executive officer and marketing officer. And we have a team of people under here who help with customer happiness and the podcast and content and social media and helping me build programs. And we have teams that we hire out. You know, I, I think that there's, there's so many fat, like we could have a whole conversation about entrepreneurship, but I, I think that the most important thing is just recognizing and understanding that a, you've got to make decisions really fucking fast. Yep. You're, you've already taken too long. You have to make decisions really fast while also simultaneously being incredibly patient. Yes. And not having to look back to and saying, what if, because ultimately you need to make a decision, be okay with it, and then deal with the circumstances as you make those decisions, because there ain't going to be perfect decisions and you will always have challenges along the way. So it's not regretting it and sitting around wondering what could have been or should have been. That's another mistake that I see a lot of entrepreneurs make. Totally. And if you get caught up in that, you're going to be paralyzed because you won't make the next decision. And that's the most dangerous thing for business. When you lose momentum, you're in trouble. Like I I lost momentum in my photography business at one point when I was making six figures. Oh my God, dude, I swear it took me six months to get back, right? It was a nightmare. And and now I think about momentum every single day. I don't stop putting out content. I work on Saturday. Now look, I get it. Self-care, take care of yourself, do you. I'm trying to build something, right? And so I recognize that you have to always, always be moving forward. Because like, you know, I think Brandon Dawson taught me this. He's like, if you're on a flat line, you're failing. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. So I can speak with you about business and entrepreneurship for for days, but, and maybe I'll I'll get you on again, just specifically on that topic. Sure. But I want to really cover a, 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 
a serious topic, a, a difficult topic to talk about right now, especially, you know, I lost a couple of my friends to suicide in the last couple of years. And it's a topic that many shy away from just because it's such a scary and dark subject. But especially now, I think it's a topic worth at least acknowledging. So with COVID, you know, many people experience a lot of trauma with their businesses, right? Shutting down, loved ones dying, uh, feeling isolated and abuse. I'm sure spiked up double or triple digits at home. No one knows about it. Yeah. So at 21, you started working at a corporate job. You were making serious cash legally. Uh, then you became a solopreneur. And so you, you kind of have this, this double life, you know, demons on one side and you have your success on the other side, but you were still riddled by your past. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you write that at 26, you had a gun to your mouth. Uh, tell us about that time and what stopped you from pulling the trigger. And maybe that's going to help some who are, who have in, in, in a sense, a gun to their mouth right now. Yeah. Dude, I pulled the trigger. You did. I don't know why that gun misfired. Maybe I was just so fucking drunk. Maybe it was there's a problem with the firing pin. I have no idea. I've had guns in my life since I was a little kid. That's part of growing up in the Boy Scouts. Yeah. And my girlfriend is pounding on the bathroom door, like begging me to talk to her. And like, dude, I was done. Like, here's the thing. Man. People always talk about people who commit suicide are selfish. Dude, I was, I get it. I was done. Like the pain, like how much more pain could I possibly have to go through? How much more suffering can one human being endure? Like, dude, I don't know anyone and it's not a competition. I don't know anyone who had a worse childhood than me. Right. And it's like, man, I was just so fucking done. I just, I needed an out. I get it. But, but let me tell you this. I I'm lucky. I don't know why I like, I really truly don't. I'm here for a purpose. That's for this conversation. That's for this mission. That's for this goal. That's for this impact on the world. And I think without that, here, here's what's so fascinating. Like when I was little, when I was a kid, when I was like seven, eight, nine years old, like I knew I was supposed to do something great. Like I knew, like I felt it all the time. Like I would look at my life and I'd be like, this all is going to mean something one day. I just, I don't know why I just did. And, and I think in that moment, not dying meant that I had to do something about this. And then looking at it really in a very biased perspective, I understand. It fucking sucks, dude. One of my friends killed themselves. When we were young, we were like 15. It fucking sucks. And like the truth about it is it's freedom for some people. Yeah. I don't care if you want to hear that or not. It is. But also, like, I think the really important thing, and if you're suffering right now and you're like, I'm done, what I would do, if I could go back in time and kind of change something about the way I was thinking about the world at that time, there's a few things I would do that I think are really important. I wouldn't drink. I would remove the majority of the friends I had in my life, and I would go and volunteer. Mm. I would go and serve people. I had a mentor once teach me that the moment you are at your lowest is the moment you need to give. And that became profound. From That's really part of the catalyst to how I got to this. And in that, recognizing like, yes, there's, there's the chemical side of it and the biological side of it and the pain of it and the hurt and all the things. And there's a moment in which if you can get super clear 
I believe this. I think if you can get super clear about the meaning of your life not being about you, it will help you not make that decision. But at the same time, I recognize for some people, they're just done. And it sucks. I don't know what else to say about it. And and I feel that as well. I mean, one one of the suicides, you know, one of my friends, I, I feel that was a choice that, you know, he made. And it was a conscious choice. He put a tarmac down so people didn't have to clean up after the yeah. mess. And off that when you when you make that type that kind of choice on a solid he had a solid, you know, mind in a sense. He was more optimistic than I than I am. And you gotta have to say, you know, that was his journey and he came and did what he needed to do. But but yeah, I, I love your advice to to those that are suffering right now. Hopefully they can at least view their life from a different perspective and have that chance to do a little more, you know, get a little further down the, the road because it could change for you. Nothing is forever, you know, and in just in the interest of time, I know you you're, you have a show to go to and, and I, I'd love to have you back. And there's so much, so much to uncover here, but I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Man, I love that question. You're going, I'm going to reference Grant Cardone again because he's just played such a great role in my life. He's invested in Think Unbroken. Like nobody gets money from Grant Cardone, yeah. right? Well, you're a good salesperson. They, you, yeah, you did no, it. You right. outsold him. I, I told him, I was like, you know, the truth is I'm a better salesperson than you. And he's like, I love oh. it. you know, it was great. It was a great moment. No, he, he told me when he goes, you're going to have to quit something to get something. Mm. And that, and I reflected on this journey and I was like, I had to give up being a victim. I had to give up being an addict. I had to give up not being in control. I had to give up the reality that I was not showing up for myself. You got to give a lot of shit up if you want to get stuff. Yeah. Even, even now, like real time, dude, I just had to make three of the hardest decisions of my life in the last four weeks. Wow. Devastatingly difficult decisions that I wish I never would have had to make, but I had to because if I didn't, I knew I would die with regret. Mm. And that's the thing that drives me. People ask me all the time. They look at me, they go, you're fearless. I go, no, I'm not. I'm scared every moment of every single day. The only difference is I'm willing to face my fear because the reality, the truth about my life is that the number one thing that terrifies me, and you hear people talk about this, is that I'm going to be on my deathbed and in my last breath, I'm going to go, I wish. Nothing terrifies me more than that. And so when I have to make the hard decisions, when I have to move towards the thing that keeps me awake at night, like, and there's things that come up where you're laying in bed and you can't sleep and you feel it in your body and you're like, fuck, man. If you make that decision, if you face that fear, your life will be different. And the longer you avoid it, the more that it consumes you until you explode. And one of the greatest things that I've gained is the willingness to face fear. And if you can do that, your life will be different. Wow. I love that. I love that. Your last name unbroken. That was, I'm assuming changed. I'm, I'm assuming that's not your, re, your birth name, right? No, it's not my birth name. Yeah. No, <laughs> I was no. like, there's I, no way. That'd be, that'd be fucking crazy. That it? would be crazy. <laughs> uh, so unbroken, you are unbroken. 
you know, yeah. and I love that. And you're teaching others how to be unbroken. And I thank you for that. We need more of you in this world. There's too much darkness. And I, we need those light beings. I was just telling the, uh, my previous guest that as well, because he is as well. Thank you, Michael, for gracing us on the seven hats. And I look forward to continuing our relationship and, and hopefully doing something again in the future. How can the seven hatters find you? Tell us a little bit about what you're offering, websites, LinkedIn, whatever it is that you want to present. I'm everywhere on social at Michael Unbroken. It is not that hard to find me. Um, but the Think Unbroken podcast is where I put all of my effort and energy. It's thinkunbrokenpodcast.com, uh, iTunes, Spotify, whatever, Think Unbroken podcast. I tell people all the time, if you just listen to that, you never have to do anything else. Wow. But you got to listen. Yeah. Got to listen. Michael, thank you so much. I will speak with you soon. My pleasure, my friend. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael. Let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Michael received some invaluable advice from Grant Cardone, who told him that to achieve success in life, you're gonna have to quit something to get something. And for Michael... He had to give up being a victim, an addict, and most importantly, he had to give up not being in control. For me, I had to give up excuses and blame when my goals were unmet. I had to take responsibility for my own life and ask myself the following question. What is it about me that created all of this in my life? And then it was time to take action. When you run out of excuses and those to blame, you experience that space between thought and action. And within that silence lies a decision in mindset that can either spiral you down the rabbit hole of despair or propel you up the ladder to greatness. So as Michael reminds us, make those tough decisions and face your fears. And if you can do that, your life will be different. I want to thank Michael once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and tell other entrepreneurs what value you received from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.